ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Tabletop Cyberpunk. My name is John John the Wise. This is the podcast about Cyberpunk 2020 and Red, the tabletop games. I hope you guys have had a wonderful week and you enjoyed the last episode because this one is a doozy, as they say. I got a very special guest with me, but before we get into that, make sure you guys join the Discord community. The link will be in the description below. Make sure you guys are subscribed to the podcast if you're watching this on YouTube, Tabletop Cyberpunk. It's on Spotify and all the other podcatchers. And make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube if you're listening to the podcast. Social media, John John the Wise. That's it. That's all about me. All right. Today I have a very special guest with me. I have Guy Sklanders from How to Be a Great Game Master. How you doing, Guy? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. This is a big deal for me. This is one of those uh, career highs, as they say, <laughs> because um, I can say this honestly with uh, my whole community listening to me. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for you. And I told you, uh, I told you, be prepared for compliments because they're coming. <laughs> so, well, as long as you're having fun, that's the bottom line. That, that then that's all achieved. That is the common denominator for everything I'm doing. I promised myself if I stopped having fun that I wouldn't be doing it anymore because it's just not worth it. If it's not Absolutely. the whole business, I mean. We're not going to be millionaires doing this, so <laughs> you know what I mean. I don't know if you are. I don't know if you got a secret. If you could, I wish. I wish. No. no. <laughs> Damn it! Not even guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just the way that uh, your whole channel is set up. For those of you that are unfamiliar, guy has a YouTube channel, "How to Be a Great Game Master," among other things that he does. But uh, that is the key way that I was introduced to you. I found your your uh, videos on YouTube to help me be a game master, create my campaigns, and the lessons that you've taught your viewers have carried on to all kinds of genres. And I've been doing all kinds of cyberpunk campaigns and stuff like that using your same principles. I don't know if you were aware that you're that generalized in information. Well, we actually tried to be as general as possible. I mean, it's difficult because you—it's it, so much easier to refer to to, to uh, Dungeons and Dragons because that's sort of common ground for most role players. So we do go there, and we we certainly know that um, fantasy has a lot more support uh, in terms of of viewers and and people doing stuff. So that's where the most requests come from. But personally, I'm much more of a, a sci-fi fan myself. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, so we try and keep the information that we give out as generic as possible. I mean, it's it's storytelling, um, and as we say, you know, that hasn't changed in twelve thousand years worth of storytelling or more, depending on how long you you want to go back in history. But yeah, so so there we go. Well, let me ask you because uh, you obviously inspired me to do my channel, and uh, but I wonder what inspired you to sit behind the camera. And I know it's hard to look at your original videos because, I mean, even for me, I've been doing it for two years. It's so hard to look at those videos in the beginning. But even yeah. in the beginning where you, you, you're you obviously a little more wound up, a little more uptight, just like anybody else. And you decided, why don't I just turn on a camera, tell people what it's like to run a good game, have a good group, be mm. be a good people person is pretty much most of the lessons that you've been teaching. <laughs> what made you what inspired you to do that and what gave you the confidence to not have imposter syndrome the entire time <laughs> wow okay yes the second question is a very very strong one um that's, it's it's something it? i know it's something that i deal with <laughs> and most of the creators that i talk to deal with all the time yeah so so diving into the first first part of that question um I am from South Africa, and there was an annual role-playing convention that everyone used to go to. And um, there was a section that was competitive play, which a lot of people kind of go, well, how can you play competitively, mm. you know, role-playing? Because it wasn't just Dungeons and Dragons. It was you signed up and there were there was Warhammer 40k role playing going on there was Call of Cthulhu there was Dungeons and Dragons there was, but the scoring system that the guys had was really really good and it was designed to help you look and go oh okay so i scored lowly on this or i scored lowly on that i can work on that so for gms it was really 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 useful um oh your npcs are not so clear 
okay, cool. Well, that's something I can work on. So I really liked that component of it. And I was just very fortunate, I guess, that for three years running, I won the competition as the, the best GM at the event. Um, but on the fourth year, when I was busy signing up, there was a young man who was waiting in line to sign up as well. And he went, oh, are you competing? And I went, well, sure. I mean, it's a competition and, you know, why not? And he went, okay, well, then I'm not going to sign up then because I, <laughs> there's no way I will, I, I, you know, you're going to win. And I went, wow, okay, that is not what my goal is. And that is not what I want other GMs to, to, to suffer or go through. So I immediately withdrew from, from competitive play um, straight away mm. and went, well, why, why is it that someone like me can come in and, and win these competitions as opposed to somebody else? What's the difference? What's the differentiator? And I think one of the things was that my background is, is script writing in film and television. And I went, okay, so I understand the principles of how to tell a good story, but that's, that's a very small component of role-playing. Role-playing is a much more complicated hobby than a lot of people seem to you know, give it credit for. Yeah. And I went, well, let me show people how I tell a story. And so that's when I, when I recorded it. Um, and the recording almost caused it not to happen which was was quite interesting. Wow. Uh, my partner at the time, yeah, um, you know, we'd set up a background and, and, and we'd kind of got in, in gear and stuff and I'd borrowed cameras and things from my film buddies um, because I was filming it like a, a film thing that I, I would normally do as a day job. And my partner was there and he kept saying, stop lecturing, stop going into your professional voice mode, just talk to people, just, mm. just, just be you. Um, it's, it's hard to find your voice, you know, especially in the beginning. And I think that's what it was, right? Correct. It was about that, but also, um, that relationship didn't last for very long, which is probably indicative of a whole bunch of stuff, but, uh, <laughs> it, it was also about the case of my channel is most certainly an educational channel. You don't yeah. necessarily go to my channel to, to laugh or to see, uh, trends and 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 that sort of thing. You come to the channel to be educated. So yeah. there is a certain, I don't want to say formality because I I have tried to make it as crazy and as engaging as possible. But it's just who I am. Well, you're also taking a subject that is a game at its core, and yeah. you're you're taking not a serious tone with it, but you're you're taking it seriously. Really, you're like you know you're taking it. I always tell people being a game master is kind of like a scholarly pursuit. You're you're reading books, you're writing. I mean, if it, it's, it supplement any other subject, and people would think that oh, you're a scholar, but but we're doing it with swords and dragons and and stuff like Absolutely. that. And 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 that's what I love about the hobby is that there is just so much out there. You know, you look at 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 people and you say, okay, cool, you're a game master. What are your hobbies? And it's sword fighting, or it's going to archaeological sites in the middle of nowhere. And you go, well, why? And it's like, well, because if I know how a sword works and I can describe it better in combat, and I can do this, and I can do that. So absolutely, I mean, Gary Gygax wrote a very influential book in my life called Master of the Game, mm -hmm. which I think came out in the early '80s. And in that, uh, this was obviously pre-internet. He had a list of books that he recommended that <clears throat> game masters read, and it was just a whole bunch of history books: the history of Rome, the history of architecture, medieval castles, and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, then getting back to your second question about the imposter syndrome, mm. I am always still nervous before a game. Yeah. And I've been gaming for 20 plus years and people have, have joined queues to join my game. And you kind of go, well, when you're at that point, surely you can go, well, I'm, I'm a great GM. I don't think so because you're only as good as your last adventure. And so it should be an exciting thing that you, you, you're investing in and you're driving and you should be trying to, to, to push yourself to do it better. Um, and not just go, okay, well, you know, people now say you're a great GM. Okay, cool. That's it. Yeah. So that imposter syndrome, I try and push that back by going, okay, cool. Well, my next campaign series, I want to try and make it more like a mystery series. So mm -hmm. how do I make a really good mystery that my players can run through? Or how do I do this? Or how do I do that? 
Um, so yeah, I think that's how you overcome it is by saying it's there, but let me try and be better. Let me try and not be the imposter that I'm worried that I am. And I think people will, at the end of it, when your player's like, oh my God, that was amazing. That was so cool. Well, boom, there you go. Yeah, imposter. yeah exactly. You get the uh, gratification from your work, from your players. I've I've been so numb to like, don't get your hopes up. You know, don't with your players because it, I've I've written NPCs in adventures and they're like, yeah, now we're gonna go do this thing and that thing. So I've like killed that part of me. So when they say this is an amazing adventure, I don't know how to take it. I just say, uh, maybe they're lying. I don't know something like that. But you said something interesting about basically what you're saying is to be as humble as possible in this pursuit because we both have names like how to be a great gm and my i'm john john the wise like yeah great on my twitter profile it says i'm not really wise it's just it's just the name so i'm always trying to learn from other people i always try to better myself i read modules i watch videos like yours seth skorkowski taking 20 and all these people that help me out so much in my games and when somebody else tells me, hey, you're a great game master, I, my immediate reaction is like, oh, no, no, I'm not that great. I, I, I still have a lot to learn. There's better than me. And maybe that's the right approach, right? I think that, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we have to constantly be saying, well, I'm glad you enjoyed the game. And mm -hmm. if you had fun, then that's fantastic. That's really, really, really cool. Um, I do think that that's the biggest challenge that as game masters we do have is that there is a certain expectation that we are there to provide entertainment for the players. Yeah. And if the players are not having fun, then it's our fault. And there are a lot of reasons why it could have been our fault. But at the exact same time, we also should only be playing this game because we're having fun whilst doing it. So you've got to find that balance between saying, well, actually, you know what? I, I'm pretty proud of that little riddle I put together or that adventure or... Uh, but yes, not to get to the point where you just assume you know everything and you can you can can do everything. Because if you're playing with the same group for 20 years, then sure, it's a different kind of experience. But if you are hopefully one day going back to conventions and you're playing with different groups or you're trying out different different people, everybody's different. So your playing style is gonna have to change up. And if you're if you have this arrogance that you are just brilliant, you're not gonna be very flexible, I don't think. No. Um, so yeah completely agree it's 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 like all things in life you know once you think you're an expert then something comes along and and makes you eat the humble pie but uh, i wanted to go back to you talking about your scene writing or um script writing background mm -hmm. because i think that's really helped you a lot in being a game master just from my perspective you wrote an amazing book how to write epic campaigns is that what it's called Complete guide to epic campaigns. Complete yeah. guide to epic campaigns. It's only ten bucks on Drive Through RPG. I recommend it to everybody that I talk to. And I'm like, look, I know that this is another cost to you, but I'm telling you, if there's one thing you can get from that book, it's the sentence. And the sentence is pretty much what I've been looking for my entire life was is there a formula to writing a good story? I know we have the hero's journey, and that's something that everybody uses. But I mean, for for games, for 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 RPGs, what is the formula? And the sentence is that. Could you elaborate to people what the sentence is? Yes. So, uh, well, the sentence in 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 as it stands is somebody wants something badly by a specific time and is having difficulty getting it using certain tools or forces because someone is stopping them. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the whole sentence. And um, that comes from script writing. That is a, that is a, a sentence I, I've expanded upon it um, to make it a little bit clearer, but that is something that script writers use um, as, a, as a way of testing whether the script is good. Mm -hmm. um, because a script is not role playing. You you kind of write it, and then and then hopefully you it's it's a good script, and then people will take it. Um, so you insert into that someone. You insert the villain or the heroes, the PCs. I usually go with the villain because then it it gives you more latitude when you are then running the game to be more flexible. Yeah, because 
ultimately you don't know where the PCs are going to go and you don't know what they're necessarily wanting to do. You don't know what they want. And so to give them a difficulty in getting that is, is tricky. You don't know how to do that. But with the villain, if you say, well, the villain wants to take over the world before the, or by the solar eclipse, but he can't do that because he needs a crystal which will enhance his power. But the goons he keeps sending out to try and get the crystal keep failing because the PCs keep stopping those goons from getting those crystals. Now, suddenly, you have a framework. And from that framework, you can then say, okay, well, the villain wants the crystals. The PCs keep stopping him from getting the crystals. What is he going to do to overcome that? Yeah. So when your PCs then go, okay, well, we take the crystal and we eat it because they're players, right? They're going to do crazy things. Yeah. What is the villain's response to that going to be? Um, is he going to try and find an alternative source? Is he going to try and gut one of the PCs? So he sends assassins after the PCs. It gives you as the game master so much more latitude so that as you get more comfortable with that principle, then as you were saying earlier, you don't really want to plan too much because your players are going to go everywhere anyway. And you're going, well, that's okay. I don't have to have these mega complicated plans that are not going to then ever see the light of day. I just need to go back to my sentence and ask, well, what's my villain going to do now? Because yeah. ultimately that's always going to be the trip up. And if the PCs don't take the bait, if they don't go on the journey to stop the, the villain, you should just have other villains who have other things going on. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, and then all of your energy has only been spent on writing one sentence as opposed to an entire campaign that now just never, never, never happens. So yeah, that's, that's when, when I was writing the book and, and my whole channel has always been about, okay, here's some theory, but how do we actually put that into practice? How do we make this something that is actually usable? Cause that always used to frustrate me when I was learning, I'm like, well, that's great theory, but give me, give me something I can work with. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that that the book has helped you in in, in some way because oh immensely, <laughs> yeah no immensely because basically what the sentence does is it eliminates writer's block. Right. What it does is when you don't know what else to do with the story, you can go back to the sentence and remember that that was your inspiration from the beginning. So uh, another big lesson you learn from the book is, I mean, it sounds like common sense, but every story has a beginning, middle, and end. And that's one, two, three. That's a structure. The, the one, two, two, one, the, the, everything that you teach in the book is pretty much structuring your writing. And when you have a blueprint on how you can begin your writing and where to look for inspiration, you just let your brain flow. And write, 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 delete what you need to delete. And anytime you're confused on where this story is supposed to go, you go back to the sentence. And because of that, I mean, that's a universal writing thing. It has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. I've used it for all my campaigns. All my players are like, oh, that twist was amazing. How did you do that? And it's like the sentence. That's it. That's all I did was. So. Yeah, basically, thank you is what I want to say <laughs> <Right>. and make <laughs> sure everybody knows that. But uh, I also noticed about you that there's this uh, th there's order and balance in everything that you do. You have a journal with you. You you have structure. You came up with this formula. Where did that come from? Where did that kind of uh, writing and, and way of being come from? I think... The initial uh, space was coming from failing, mm. failing a lot. So I would write uh, scripts and I would write stories when I was in, in in college and trying to 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 become a script writer and that sort of thing. And I would I would write them and then I'd make them as films and I just watch as the stories just failed. And again, it was like, well, why? What is causing this to 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 fall? And it was not sticking to that 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 kind of formula. Mm. And I got to a point where I used to 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 lecture film and television. And in Hollywood, there's there is a specific technique where everything is broken into 10-minute blocks. Mm. So in a 90-minute film, you've got nine blocks. And when you look at that, that fits exactly into the three-act structure. It fits exactly into the one-to-one -one method, which I talk about in my book. And once you see that, suddenly when you're watching films, you're like, well, I know exactly what's going to happen next because we're nine minutes and 95 seconds into a whatever. 
And there's a wonderful film with John Candy in it called Cool Runnings, mm. which came out in the early 90s about a Jamaican bobsled team. It's yep. a lot of fun. <laughs> but that film is so formula. Literally, my students would sit there and they'd watch as as a 10 minute clock ticked over the next beat in the, that nine beat section sort of happened. So uh. I kind of took all of that and I, I took all of my script writing knowledge and, and, and my experience. And I said, OK, when we're looking at, at role playing, can we use the same technique? And I realized I actually was doing that subconsciously anyway. I didn't have the formula and the templates before I, I, I sort of codified it. And I went, well, then that's brilliant. Then that we can then translate that into something that GMs can then use and go, well, okay, I know where I am in that sort of structure. So what's coming up next needs to be potentially a this or potentially a that. And as you say, it helps you with writer's block. It also helps you if you haven't necessarily had time to plan you go, okay, well, we need an introduction to the villain. So how am I going to introduce the villain? Let's do it in the most flashy way possible. Um, we're going to Michael Bay this and start with an explosion. Yeah. You know, or we're going to, we're going to do something weird and quirky, or we're going to do something mysterious. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're just following the steps sort of moving forward. So they're not meant to be restrictions. They're meant to be supports so that you're free to go, okay, cool. Well, we're going to throw in an ogre. Or we're going to throw in a, um, if, if we're talking sort of cyberpunk, we're going to throw in some kind of, of bounty hunter who has some kind of device which will kill you via a neural link. Hmm. Um, right. Okay. So the bounty hunter is our villain, right? How do we introduce him to the story and the players? Maybe the players find someone who has been killed in this way. Okay, cool. So we need a crime scene. There we go. First section of the adventure is done. Now, why? how did he kill him? Well, we know he uses this neural link. So there's a burn mark on the side of the head. And that's the only clue that they get. And then they can go off and do whatever it is that they're going to do. And you're then going, okay, next step is to introduce them to the plot. Why does this cyber assassin want to kill them? Next step, next step. So you, you, you're constantly just, yeah, just following it, going, well, I'm free to go wherever I want because I'm not constrained anymore by trying to panically figure out what's next yeah exactly i love that idea about it too that you you pretty much have a structure so when you get to certain parts of the story you can be as creative as you want to because you don't have to be afraid that you're messing up the plot or anything like that the sentence is the plot everything else is just decoration around the correct plot. correct correct yeah all right, and the players, the players are making the story. That's the key thing. Yeah, exactly. You're not making the story as the GM. As the GM, you have your plot and you have your trigger. And when that trigger happens, then the players are going to be doing stuff, which you can't anticipate. Yeah, you had a great uh, something. You have a lot of these like profound quotes. Remember, compliments coming. <laughs> so you had one of these profound quotes that you said that was like, ah, yes, exactly. In your latest video, you said, uh, as a game master, this is your event not your story it's the player's story you're just putting on a show yeah and that that resonates with me so much that's exactly how i try to look at all my stories it's like yeah i wrote this and everything but you're the ones driving the plot that's it so that's it. let's do a little bit of shifting gears here because we're going to be hmm. talking a little i i, I kind of want to focus a little bit on cyberpunk red um have you played cyberpunk at all 2020 or have you are you familiar with the games I haven't played the games, but I have played a lot of cyberpunk-based uh, RPGs and that sort of thing. And um, I've worked on on a uh, system setting for it's 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 coming out still. There were some problems with the publishing for a TTRPG called Carbon Twenty One Forty Five. Eighty five, yeah, yeah, eighty five. Yeah, I backed yeah. it on uh, on uh, Kickstarter. It's great. I mean, um, it has its issues. But uh, I think that overall, it's a fun game. Absolutely, and I was I was privileged enough to get hired to write the source book for Tokyo. Oh, very uh, nice! Because I was living in Tokyo at the time, and so you know the the guys got hold of me and they said, "Okay, well, can you write the source book for Tokyo? Here's some some stuff." Um, and yeah, that was a really fun experience because a lot of the stuff that's in the Tokyo source book, if anyone has ever visited Tokyo 
will realize that that is not cyberpunk. That's just what Tokyo is like now, mm. um, because that's such a futuristic city. It really is. It really is intense. But uh, yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's that's great. That's one of my bucket list places to go to Japan. It looks amazing right. over there. I yeah. mean, you, you see like videos of like, oh, that's how they valet cars. It's like this amazing machine that takes your car, and <laughs> they're living yeah. in the future, man. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that was that was the funny thing was that I was writing for. Uh, this this time period um and they said no it's too sci-fi you got to tone it down yeah uh, so i'm like okay well i'll make it japan 2019 um because that's kind of what it, it ends up being but that's the other thing about japan is that you have tokyo um and places like kyoto and and and, and other major cities where it is the future yeah and then you walk or you take a train to the edge of that city and suddenly you're stepping 400 years into the past. Oh, wow. Into wooden homes and just Japan of antiquity, which is it's mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, um, I, I had that kind of juxtaposition in one of my games too, where uh, they live in this cyber dark future where it's kind of post-apocalyptic in some places. In other places, it's a futuristic city. And then other places, it's beautiful suburban houses with cul-de-sacs, kids playing outside, and people are just walking around looking like, is this real? Is this really happening? And uh, the only reason they can do that is because they're in a corporate zone. So. Right, right. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about um, realism versus suspension of disbelief because Cyberpunk Red, so just to give you a little bit of history, Cyberpunk 2020 came out about 30 years ago. And the community has still been playing it to this day. But after 30 years, you can imagine that there's been a lot of homebrew, a lot of changes, things, quality of life stuff, things that developers have learned over the years. And finally, we just got Cyberpunk Red. It just released a few weeks ago. And they have modernized the game. Mm. And with modernizing the game, they had to take away a, a little bit of the simulation of realism that 2020 had i mean 2020 had all kinds of stuff like what how much damage each kind of bullet does a 0.22 lr a nine millimeter a nine millimeter super i mean it goes on and on through the splat books so because of that it attracted a lot of people that are into that realism simulator and they even homebrewed their own realistic stuff into the game and cyberpunk red took the approach of you know we need to make a balanced game system that works and, and all this other stuff is fun. We can add it later on, maybe. But we got to have a good base. Mm. And there's a lot of suspension of disbelief. Like, oh, wait, why can't I do this thing that I was able to do it in this 30-year-old game? Why can't I do it in red? And it, the answer is because it's not balanced. We got to do it this certain way. So how do you feel about balance versus realism simulators and stuff like that? It's a very tricky one. I think... To be to be to give you my honest answer, which is not a useful answer, which is why I don't like it very much, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's about reading your group. To be honest with you, um, I've role played with people who love their simulationists, uh, who love their simulation, and to make it uh, not a balanced game. It doesn't have to be balanced, but it just needs to be a case of okay. Well, yes, a uh, uh, 0.22 will do this much damage versus a 9 mil versus a 303 or, you know, going into bigger calibers. Um, this vehicle will travel at this speed. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you get those those kind of folks who really enjoy playing with the system itself. So it's it's a meta game that they are playing as well as role playing. So there's there's a role playing element, but it's the numbers that they that they're really keen about. And then you get others where it's like, no, numbers are not necessarily important. It is all about the story. And you're absolutely right. There has been a major shift towards simplification and the reduction of information that we're getting in role-playing games. Personally, I find that very, very sad. Mm -hmm. um, because I grew up on books where I was like, I have no idea what the difference is between a mangonel and onager um, and, uh, let's say, catapult is. Yeah. So you go and research it, and you're like, oh, my goodness, they're all from the Romans who were just these really devious weapon designers, um, and that's what this is, and that's what this is, and that was it. Whereas now, if it all gets sort of washed down to, well, it's a, a, a siege weapon, and it does X damage, you're like, well, 
it's it's losing something i think so but again if your players don't care if they're just about having a good time and social interaction then yeah it doesn't matter so when you then look at something like cyberpunk and you go well the one written 30 years ago was written at the the height i would say in my my limited experience of the sci-fi computer terror period yeah where you've got things like the fear of the machine taking over. We're moving away from aliens uh, in terms of sci-fi literature. And now it's more towards robots and AI and the computerized world and, and all of those kind of wonderful things that were opening up in that, that sort of time period. Whereas today, it's like, well, we kind of almost already there. I mean, Elon Musk is pushing us as fast as he possibly can into a cyberpunk future anyway. Yeah. Um, so there is always going to be that 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 challenge of going well, yeah. The edge that that slightly fantastic notion, which we had thirty years ago, it's not really there anymore. When you say, "Oh, the communicator is embedded in the side of your skull," thirty years ago that was amazing. Now we're like, "Well, yes, can I have that, please?" Because then I don't have to worry about my phone. If I can just swipe in front of me and my apps are there, I'm totally down with that. Yeah. Um, it's like so, voluntarily taking your eyeball out to to get in a cyber I, eye. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that we are, to a large degree, past the fear of that. And when you think about the 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 crux of of storytelling, it's it's oftentimes about exploring the unknown, exploring the fear. And science fiction in particular, I think Arthur C. Clarke was the one who said, oh, no, it wasn't Arthur C. Clarke, it was Ray Bradbury, I think, who said that it is the last playground of the philosopher. Mm. Because we can go, well, what if there is an alien race that only has currency as their primary motivator, um, which you know Gene Roddenberry then did his, his Ferengi. So when you look at cyberpunk, it's not really sci-fi, but we kind of having to make it sci-fi just so that it still remains something that is unknown something that we can explore and um yeah. I, one of my favorite role-playing systems of all time was d20 modern which came out i don't want to say now but it's probably like 15 years ago i mean it was it was just after 3.5 had released and, and you know they were sort of expanding um and you go well that d20 modern is no longer d20 modern mm. it's sort of d20 slightly old out of date type of d20 so yeah. I think whatever they're doing in terms of of the system, it is it is a challenge, um, and and the homebrew factor is very very strong. Yeah, um, it doesn't matter really what system I'm playing. I'm always going to be homebrewing anyway, whether it's the monster statistics or certain attributes, or, or I'm, I love tinkering with systems um, to make it make it fun. Yeah, um, you know and. Um, there's this other notion of saying, well, uh, in cyberpunk, I suppose it's not too much of an issue, but, um, in, in sci-fi games and, and fantasy games, it's like going, no, actually all, all the different species now have the same statistics, but you can now custom design it based on your ancestry or on your legacy or any word to avoid the race word, which yeah. I think I understand politically why, but they are just different races um yeah. you know and, and and anyway so that that idea of taking that out you're like well what are you left with you're left with this very neutral thing you're also telling people they can't celebrate each other's differences it's like yeah, we, we need to ignore these differences that we have right. when it's like why can't it be a positive thing where it's like you are who you are i am who i am and we both love that about each other Sure, sure, absolutely. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Of course. <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's hey, you went there first. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Guilty. Yeah, no, don't worry. Um, but I, I think the, th the thing about cyberpunk is just innately, it's so wrapped up with truth and it's so similar to our world. And I've noticed that when I play with people that have never played any tabletop RPGs and their first one is cyberpunk, they know what to do because i go you walk into a nightclub and you see the drug dealer mob boss sitting in the in his uh uh bottle section or bottle table whatever it's called and and you see him and he's got his lackeys with him you know as a person that you might have walked into a bar you might have walked into a nightclub yourself you know the ambiance you know the the atmosphere and everything 
So because of that, I feel like people get really engulfed in the realism of the story. And and unlike uh, the fantastical nature of D&D and stuff like that, even though cyberpunk is technically science fiction, it feels like science fact. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, it, it's very liberating. You're absolutely right. Because if you added to that scene and you said that he's standing, he's sitting at his table and there's a holographic uh, dancer doing some dance in front of him. Mm. I don't know of many people who wouldn't be able to visualize that. Exactly. Uh, certainly in the role-playing community anyway. Yeah. Uh, my mother would probably have difficulty with that, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> she's definitely not cyber or punk in either shape or form. Give her a chance. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the challenge, though, that you then have is because it's so close to real life, you then have players going, well, if I fire a gun in this nightclub, Normal consequences would be whoever's in there will either fire back, but then they will run. However, there should also be a gigantic amount of police who will suddenly arrive. Yep. And an entire judicial system, which is just ready and waiting to prosecute people for discharging firearms in a public space. Yeah. So you get to a point where you're suddenly going, well, my players can't do what they normally do in fantasy, which is, oh, well, we'll just kill the thing and then maybe there's some town guard but we don't know what the reaction times are like for town guard or for the sheriff or for the lord in exactly. cyberpunk or in more modern settings it's like well the police will be there in about five minutes mm -hmm. so you're on the clock and all those security cameras have got beautiful scans of your faces there is no anonymity within this space unless you take great measures to do that yeah um, so there can be that restriction and you're going Ah, okay. So now I have to think slightly different because Hollywood ignores it completely. Yeah. Hollywood, there's shoot-ups, and then you'll hear the cops way off in the distance, but somehow those cops never follow the leads. They never follow the eyewitnesses who were running away in terror, and the players don't have that kind of, of um, consequence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so there, and, is a, there is a bit of a balance that you've got to find. Yeah, and even in Cyberpunk, the variables are so vast. I mean, the nightclub that you shot up, the cops are mad. The mob boss that owns the nightclub is mad. The yeah. booster gang that usually hangs out in this nightclub is mad. So right. the, these are all things the players think about before they pull out their pistol. In a game that is very lethal, too, by the way. It's a very lethal game, especially 2020. I mean, you can die on the first round of combat and rip up your character sheet right away. <laughs> that was one of the biggest sticking points that they tried to change in red, and some people are upset about it, but it's like, hey, we right. were, we were homebrewing, protecting yourself a little bit for years, all right? So, but yeah, <clears throat> there's that. Let's shift a little bit of gears uh, over here. I got a few more questions. How long have we been? Oh, we've been doing 39 minutes. All right, cool. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Let's do... Um, I wanted to ask you about weaving multiple campaigns together under one overarching mm -hmm. campaign. So this is kind of a selfish question because I wanna, I'm going to be doing this. So I got like a direct line with one of, right. my, one of my teachers. <laughs> so my idea is um, I want to have like a main hub of uh, a town or something, whatever you want to call it. And I can play with one group and it takes place in this town. I can play with another group. It takes place in this town. But I still want them all to feel a connection to the story, to the plot. So how can you go about... I know this is a super broad question. But how can you go about connecting multiple people to one sentence or, or overarching campaign? Sure. So... The quick and dirty answer is that if you if you are planning on having these two groups ever meet, decide on how you want that meeting to be. Do you mm. want it to be collaborative or do you want it to be hostile, uh, antagonistic? It, yeah. What what is that that going to be? If it is antagonistic, then there's a very easy way that the two of them can be connected. The two different groups can be connected to your sentence. <clears throat> One group is working for the villain, even though they don't necessarily know it, and the other group is working against the villain. So that puts them in the same kind of space. And what that does is it means that every time you're writing an adventure, you have you've actually written two adventures. Mm. Because when you're going, okay, there's a, uh, a train gets hijacked, and the PC is going to go and try and save the train and, and save the people on the train. 
the other group are trying to make sure that there is a very important dignitary on the train who has to be taken out, so they have to hijack the train to be able to do that in. Now, you don't necessarily play it at the same time. That would just be logistically a nightmare. Um, but you're starting to see, okay, cool. Well, well, one group does a mission. The other group then comes in in the aftermath or vice versa. If they're needing to work together, then one of the other ways to do it is to have them working for two different agencies. So the idea would be the one group is working for the billionaire who funds everything and gives them a secret lair. And he is kind of working with the security department of the city who the other group of players work with. So there's still a semi-rivalry that would happen. And that allows you to then sort of name drop the other PCs into each other's kind of spaces. And when they do get together, it's like, oh yeah, you work for the billionaire, oh, you work for the agency sort of thing. So yeah, that's certainly one way of doing it. Another way of doing it, and this is where it becomes a lot more of a juggle, is to have two sentences running. You've got two different groups operating, mm. but they're both being controlled by the central figure right at the top. Mm. So what you're doing is, is the central figure right at the top, this is a never-present nemesis in terms of, of my, my naming conventions, is that it's the nemesis that they will never see, but that they will hear about. Mm -hmm. That's, that that's pretty much every bad guy in all my stories has been that, that the corporation, the big bad corporation. Right, right, right. So, um, yes, then you have two, two villains doing their thing. It's two separate sentences, or at least they think they're separate sentences. But if you're crafty enough, you're going to drop clues in, in, and names and things that as they're running through it, they're like, hang on a moment. What we're dealing with is actually it's the small time there's something bigger going on and the mm. other group hopefully if you if you if you're good at, at timing will realize the same thing mm. so when you get to your giant showdown it could be quite fun to then have both groups present at the same time i mean good luck to you that would be a yeah. mega event but imagine that kind of event where you've got these players now getting around you on zoom and they're going well, why are you here? Well, we're here to stop the dolphin kidnapper. I don't know why he's the yeah. dolphin kidnapper. <laughs> the dolphin bastard. Um, but we know that he's not actually a dolphin kidnapper. There's something bigger. And then they reveal that they know there's something bigger as well. And that final adventure is them working together using the clues that you've hopefully distributed throughout your entire campaign to then get to the point where they then do actually take down that big never-present nemesis um, and bring them to justice and, and, that, and that sort of thing. So I, I, I think your, your starting point, that very long answer, your starting point is what type of relationship do you want the two groups to have antagonistic or, or um, working together uh, cooperative? Yeah, I think the... I think what I do like personally is cooperative, but with a little bit of rivalry. Yeah, where absolutely. it's like you know they they're doing and the whole uh, example you brought up with departments like working for a corporation that's accounting, that's the shipping warehouse and that's like kind of that idea and structure of it is like those guys take care of those jobs these guys take care of these jobs sometimes they'll step on each other's toes, but at the end of the day they're supposed to be working together. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, so guy. I, I <laughs> yeah. Well, if it inspires something, then that's great. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much all your work is inspiring something. Well, that's, yeah, that, 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 that for me is the reward is when I hear people like yourself or others going, oh, you really helped me solve this. My party had so much fun. Yeah. Great. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that that's exactly how it's going down with me. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, one more, one of two, the last two, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, I wanted to ask you about killing your players outside of combat through like a trap or some sort of force of nature or something like that. I know that for me, anytime I kill my players, I love leaving it to the rules and the dice rolls. And it's like I have receipts like, hey, I didn't personally kill you. Here's my receipts. Here's my evidence. The guy that wrote this game killed right. you. And even Mike Pondsmith, uh, he famously says during every interview, the first thing he says, hi, I'm Mike Pondsmith. And I'm the one that killed your cyberpunk character. So, <laughs> so I can always, always go like, hey, I didn't kill you. Mike did. But, right. um, but there is something to say about the mm -hmm. danger that the players will feel that hey even though we're not in combat there is the the possibility that you can die mm. but at the same time i'll feel like such an ass 
for killing my player because they stepped on a bear trap or something like that, you know? So how do you navigate something like that? It is tricky. And people know that I hate, absolutely hate player character death. Mm-hmm. especially and and i think my players know this in the in the early parts of the game the character might very well die yeah. um from a random as you say it's the numbers that killed you it wasn't me uh but towards the middle and end of a campaign if it's been going on for a year i am will be damned that a random dice roll has killed off the central player or the, the even i mean even if they're not a central player if they're just a player character and they suddenly die, for them to bring in a new one into that campaign is going to be so, so difficult. Um, unless they're really good role players. And and um, so so I will use everything in my arsenal. It's like, oh, you failed that check. Well, as you're slipping into the pit of a- or the vat of acid, you realize there's a low-hanging cable, which you might be able to reach just before you hit the, you know, and it's 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 really Hollywood film time. I will give you three rolls, maybe four rolls, and then if it still doesn't happen and you fall into the vat of acid, well, then that's okay because the acid will actually transform you into this weird <laughs> thing, and now you have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Depending. I, um, I had a situation in my game literally two or three weeks ago where the players accidentally because they didn't really think about it, dropped a tower onto one of the player characters. Oh no. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't responsible. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, they blew out the supports on the left and the right hand side and then wondered why the thing fell over. Um, you know, oh, and so in that situation, I went, okay, well, the character is dead. Is that an interesting event or is it not an interesting event? And mm. I went, well. It's a sad event. Could I do something to make this make more sense? And so it was part of this massive, uh, in a fantasy game, invasion of an enemy army. And I'm like, well, the enemy army, I know part of my plan is they're going to convert all of the the, the uh, dead into undead mm. using the supercharged spell. So they're going to fire it off right now. And we were on Zoom, so I privately texted the player whose character had died and i said you're going to wake up and mm-hmm. uh, you're going to feel fine but you will now you now have the undead traits um so go and look those up and it has been amazing because that was about it was actually about six or seven weeks ago actually now that i think about it and for six or seven weeks the other player characters have been going are you all right you look <laughs> gray or you know they 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 touch it they're like you're really cold you, you should be warmed up or and you know occasionally they meet these people who can see the undead and suddenly they're screaming undead undead and the party like where 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 oh wait a minute mm. this one character so i i really hate player character death if there is if there is no immediate solution then then it will happen it just will happen but i will do everything in my narrative power to prevent that from happening. And yeah. again, I think that also boils down to, are you more of a cinematic GM or are you more of a simulationist GM? Mm. Um, and and yes, we were talking about all that research that was happening beforehand. The more you can research, the more you read, the more you watch and absorb stuff, the more likely you are to be able to go on, on, on that second to go, ah, I'm going to trigger this, which will actually cause the player to have a more interesting time. Um, but again, when you are then cheating death, because that's effectively what you're doing, the player must be consulted and they must have agency to say, no, actually, you know what? The character died and they died in a funny way. So I'm going to go with that and, and let me bring in a new character. And then, and then you, you, you work through that. So, yeah. but yes, sometimes you just, you just can't avoid it. And, and then it happens. So, yeah, it's I feel the exact same way about player death and but I also understand how important it is to have it in the game that fear of something that can happen to your character not having plot armor. But uh it's very tough for me to kill my players, especially in Cyberpunk they have something called the life path system mm-hmm. and you basically map out your entire life, uh, your enemies, your allies, your family. And you can put names and faces and organizations to them. And I use those people as as 
part of my sentence, as part of my plot, I weave them into it just so the players feel like this is personal. So Absolutely. I don't have to convince them to go into that nightclub. They just saw their their enemy walk into that nightclub, the one that killed their wife or, or whatever. So yes. th- they walk right into the place. But whenever one of those players dies, all that stuff goes out the window and is gone and my whole plot changes. And, and now I'm left trying to figure out, did I mess up? Was it my fault? The player feels bad. We all feel bad when someone dies. It's like two days of bad taste in your mouth. So, <laughs> and like one, good. One trick you might be able to use because I I had to do this. Um, I, I, I was I was doing a live read through of a choose your own adventure series, and we'd been going for weeks with this one character, and then due to unfortunate dice rolls, the character died. Mm. and everyone was like oh man we'd we'd got so far we'd done so much we'd been so involved and i went okay well i'm going to start again but now i'm going to be playing the brother of that character who died Mm. in your case you could potentially go to the players and say look well you died but you've got this whole family thing going on and aren't you lucky you didn't go with the i'm an orphan and all my family are dead backstory Because now you can come in as the brother or as the sister or the mother or the uncle, someone who has a slight investment already. So, so you're kind of getting that immediate buy-in. That is definitely, I think, something that you could you could use, especially in something like cyberpunk, where it's it's mainly humans or, yeah. or maybe slightly meta humans if you if you if you sort of go too far. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I mean, other than I think Shadowrun is probably one of the only major cyberpunk games that has like magical stuff. Yeah. Most other ones are are strictly human beings walking around and stuff like that. Um all right. So, last question and then we'll wrap things up. I wanted to talk to you about railroading. And <laughs> I think I already know your your answer to this, but I'd love to talk about it. Does it get a bad reputation? railroading is it a vital tool that actually benefits the players and do you ever feel like when you're telling your story that you're taking away your players agency Mm. how do you feel about railroading yes um it is it is a very difficult difficult subject and i think firstly railroading in general if it's just used because the GM doesn't want to go anywhere else is very, very bad. Yeah. Uh, if you want to do a railroad campaign, go write a novel because then you won't have anyone fighting you or trying to deviate from tracks. However, at the same time, as a GM, regardless of what system you're playing, you will need to have certain amounts of railroad in your game. But I think it's about learning the balance where when you start your campaign, I have done it many times where you go, okay, well, you're in your apartment, you're over there, you're over there, you're doing your thing, you're doing your thing. And then nothing happens because no one is drawn to a central point of crisis. There's there's no reason for them to get together and they get together and then there's no reason for them to stay together. Yeah. So you have to inject certain moments, whether it's the very start of the campaign and they're all on the same airline that's about to crash into a mountain, that's okay, but that still won't glue them together. Mm. So you then have to railroad that their characters are the ones that are selected for this to go and find help. Again, just sort of forcing them together and, and, and that sort of thing. So you do need to use railroad techniques. And this is where I kind of go, well, I wish that it wasn't called railroading. Yeah. To me, it's just called event setup. You're setting up the, the players to, to go and do their story. And lots of people will push back and say, no, that's not the GM's job. You shouldn't force them to work together if they don't want to work together. Well, sure. But then I also firmly believe that the players should also be playing a metagame railroad in their own heads where they're going, okay, cool. So the GM has given us a situation. We don't know each other from a bar of soap. But because we are all sitting here to play a game where we're supposed to be working as a team, I'm going to have my character do something to bring that together and say, hey, you and you and you, I need you to help me move the body or whatever. So it's a really complicated space to be playing in, in terms of is railroad good or is it bad? And 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 so, yes, my 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 ultimate answer is, it's both 
Too yeah. much is bad. Too little is bad. Both GM and players have to use it as a tool um, to, to really maximize. And that's, that's often I find when I'm playing with people who are very individualistic, who don't realize that they need to, to, to work as a team, that the party often feels very artificial. Yeah. And the rewards are not so great because they're not working as a team. They're working as individuals. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it's needed from both sides. And I don't think enough people realize that. Yeah, especially I would say in the cyberpunk setting, a very important thing that you said about players working together. The cyberpunk setting in general, it breeds the loner badass that talks to nobody, stands in the corner, brooding, drinking a scotch neat. I mean, yeah. that, that archetype is what everybody wants to play. But the problem with that is if you got five people that are all that, why are they conversing with each other? Why are they working together? That's completely against everything they do. So I found that if players don't know each other, the best thing I can do is tell them that their characters know each other and their characters yep. trust each other. That's You're not best friends, you're coworkers. You know right. that... You know that You'll, you'll be able to get the rewards that you need to, and you, this guy's going to be able to watch your back, but you're not going to invite him to Thanksgiving or anything <laughs> like that, or Christmas, or, or, or stuff like that. And that might seem like a railroad, but really all that does is it eliminates all that awkwardness of, you know, hey, he, I'm a big, my dad can beat up your dad kind of energy that goes around, you know what I mean? Couldn't agree with you more. And in that book, um, A Complete Guide to Epic Campaigns, there is actually a section there where it's a random table for players to roll on to, to determine the relationships that they have with each other. Um, and it, yeah, as you say, it's railroading, but those relationships are from coworker to old military buddies all the way through to brother and sister or husband and wife. And um, I broke them up into different categories in terms of pushing the players so if you're a player and you're kind of playing with new people, maybe you don't want to be lovers because that might be something awkward to try and role play. Yeah. Um, so you don't roll from column C. You roll from column A, which is, oh, we're co-workers or we live in the same apartment building or there is some familiarity. But it, it, as you say, it's about having a common goal, a common start, and then working you know, from that. So I, I, I really agree with you, yeah. Yeah, and I found that if you tell people, hey, pretend that you're friends, by the time you guys are done playing, you somehow end up becoming friends. Right. Because <laughs> you guys do all the... It's like the whole thing of like, hey, smile more, you'll you'll feel better. It's like that same kind of mentality. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want to take any more of your time, Guy. Before we wrap things up, I want to make sure that you plug everything that you need to plug, any of your recent projects. Uh, I'll say two off the bat. I know we talked about in great length your how, the complete guide to writing epic campaigns. Number one on Drive Through RPG, get that. There's also an amazing book that you wrote about uh, nautical campaigns. That's if you correct. guys are into battleships and guns and and cannons and pirates and yeehaw, then go for that as well. It is it is it more based on a D and D setting or is it a generic kind of? It's not D&D setting, but it is it is designed to work with Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Um, anything else? Any other projects that you're working on and stuff? Uh, well, we obviously have the weekly videos coming out, which uh, are advice on a broad range of, of topics. And if you want to find out any more information on that, head on over to www.greatgamemaster.com. And that's where everything is. Uh, we've got another book coming out recent, uh, in, the, in the near future. There's another Kickstarter coming out. Um, and yes, we, are, we do a lot of things um, with our community as well. We've, we, um, mainly, though, it's unfortunately, it is fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, Not unfortunate. So well, that's, yeah. Uh, well, I say it's unfortunate because, like I said, I love sci-fi and I, I love cyberpunk and, and, and uh, yes, that idea of being able to run a game in that setting is really, really exciting. But, yeah, around the, my own home table, I can do it. But as, a, as an influencer, it's like, well, if I do some sort of sci-fi thing, I get a third of the views that I get if I do a fantasy thing. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's like, well, this is my hobby. This is what I love doing. But now corporate is constraining me. Well, who the hell's corporate? 
uh, it's me as well because it's my <laughs> own channel, right? So anyway, yeah. yes. Um, so greatgamemaster.com is where they can find out all of that information. Um, and that's that's probably the most active. Otherwise, they can join our Discord channel as well, which is discord.gg forward slash greatgm. Yep, and uh, they can find all that on your website, right? Greatgamemaster.com? Yeah greatgamemasters.com has got everything on there yeah perfect uh guy thank you so much i just want to also tell you there's an open invitation to play on any of my cyberpunk games you don't have to know anything you can just come and play be a guest anytime you want anytime you want to collaborate with something as well let me know it's been an, an immense honor to be able to talk to you and i really appreciate you coming on to the podcast well it's been my absolute pleasure thank you all right, I'm going to do some outro music and we'll see you guys on the next one. Stay tuned because I got a doozy of a guest on the next one. Oh my God. All right, see you guys. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>